This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I know we've all been following what's taking place overseas uh, and maybe on the cusp of World War III. That will get anybody's attention, even if you're not into foreign policy, especially when it affects everything happening here. When gas is between 4 and $5, depending on where you're listening to us, when you notice the price of food because of inflation, because of a lot of the brilliant policies of President Obama, uh, excuse me, President Biden, and then you see the fact that we're not really reacting to grain prices going up, which is at the roots of a lot of different, uh, you know, a lot of different things that uh, you might eat, might not be aware about, uh, be uh, aware of, because what happens in the Ukraine, the big grain producers, and I believe Russia is number one. Uh, we're going to talk to Andy Card, Andy Card, chief of staff for George H.W. and W. Bush. Talk about the Vladimir Putin. He knows the Russia that has now emerged and what he expects from here on in. Also, how this government's responding and the big quest, of course, with Andy Card and with any president uh, and any chief of staff is, can you possibly get NATO and European Union to understand the threat of Russia? Now they do. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. President Biden stood in front of the American people after the Russian invasion, and he promised to turn Vladimir Putin into a pariah. Well, because of the fact that we continue to rely on the Russians to negotiate with Iran, it turns out that was a lie. We have sent our negotiating squad to Vienna to negotiate the Iran deal through the Russians. Think about that. The Iran deal is imminent. I am not kidding. The bad new the bad deal of 2015 is rebooted even more slanted towards the evil regime. And guess who we are counting on to help us? Russia. You just heard Mike Gallagher. You can't make this up. It's unacceptable uh, that they are even talking with them, allowing Russia to be at the table, let alone cutting a deal with Iran. Number two. This notion that somehow banning Russian oil would raise prices on American consumers is an admission that this guy, that this killer, that this butcher, Vladimir Putin, has leverage over us. So I think we have enough of it. We should produce more American oil and buy less Russian oil or none, actually none at all. Uh, yes, uh, Senator Marco Rubio, ban Russian oil from American shores. A bipartisan push for a reluctant White House to finally make that decision. The follow-up has to be to drill our own oil. Instead, we are begging Venezuela and Saudi Arabia to pick up the pace. Unbelievable. 600 million barrels a day, we could fill that gap. Wouldn't you be for that? Number one. What we ought to do is give the Ukrainians the ability to create a no-fly zone, more stingers, more missiles that can go higher than stingers, and above all, consummate this fighter deal, get those MiG-29s in their hands. Absolutely. Let's do it. Fight day 13. Russia gains the north. Uh, Russia gains in the north stall as they point their focus on the capital. Still, while their eyes gaze at the port city 
of Odessa. An estimated 1.4 million refugees forced from their homes, at least 10,000 killed, including many, many Russian soldiers and at least 1,200 Ukrainian citizens. So that is just terrible. The good news is, and I mean this good news, the Russians are, are suffering prolific losses, prolific. They lost nine aircraft on Saturday alone. Nine aircraft. This is like Vietnam style. When you have an insurgency with Stinger missiles and you have tanks being taken out, not only are they rusty and creaky by green soldiers, but you also have javelin missiles blowing them up. So you got that huge convoy sitting outside Kiev. One by one, they're getting taken out. They ran out of gas. So they have, in turn, instead of saying, wow, we're losing this, they're getting more and more brutal. They're being brutal on the most innocent people, families, those uh, citizens that have nothing to do with this conflict, that they started unnecessarily. So they are getting more brutal, and the Ukrainians are getting, uh, there's a need for more and more help. And we are flooding them with weapons the best we can. I'm pretty sure about that. I talked to a lot of sources. They seem to have the same story. And we are flooding them the best we can with supplies. But they're shutting off in, in about five different cities. They have uh, encircling about five different cities, not total, but close to total. They're stopping the power, and they're stopping the food, and they're stopping the water. So I don't know how long these innocent people could hold out. But the President Zelensky, who's single-handedly responsible for unifying NATO and exercising European Union, getting rid of this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and suddenly getting everyone to realize they need weapons and they're representing themselves and free cultures everywhere. Here's President Zelensky this morning. Cut one. Think about the sense of impunity of the invaders. They announced their planned atrocities. Why? Because there is no reaction. Because there is silence, not a word, as if the Western leaders have dissolved tonight. The audacity of the aggressor is a clear signal to the West that sanctions against Russia are not enough. So there's 27 MiGs coming, we believe, from Poland. They said, uh, Poland says, listen, if you can give me F-16s, I'll give give them my MiGs. And we said, well, you don't have any extra. Well, we're working it out. We're going to get it there. That's from a conference, Zoom conference call on Saturday with lawmakers. Think about what he's able to do, what no president's really been able to do for the last 20 years. That is motivate both sides of the aisle to come together, Europe and NATO, to work together in order to take out a common foe by being the face of the good guys. As imperfect as Ukraine is and what country is perfect, he has been the perfect voice and the perfect showing the perfect leadership skills to motivate us in the right area. I think it's uh, rewarding, and I think it's a learned moment for people around the world. See what can happen in a time of crisis. Do you step up, step down? Do you run like Kahani did to another country? We still haven't seen him. Or do you stay and fight? I don't want to ride. I want arms. So looking around at the fight, it's frustrating for me, and it may be for you. Even though you go on social media, you skate around. I watch Sky, the BBC. I watched our network. I see CNN. I'm not seeing much of the Ukrainian forces. But from what we see and looks at pure results, they fought brilliantly. They are getting more and more armed. And the Russians are not this big bear everyone thought they were. They are creaky. They are unmotivated. They're uncoordinated. And they're inexperienced. Colonel Steve Gadyard was the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. He was on ABC today. And he says there's only one way for this thing to end. I think at this point uh, it's going to have to be a negotiated peace, George. Uh, The Russians cannot achieve their political goal. Putin cannot achieve 
his political goal. One military analyst is saying that within three weeks, the Russian military will be exhausted. The economy might not much be, be much better. But the way that this battlefield looks right now, Mr. Putin cannot accept this. He cannot look for a settlement here because this map is a humiliation. And you're saying he doesn't have the means for a long-term occupation? Uh, he doesn't have the troops. He would have to probably double or troop, triple the number of troops that he is, uh, has in, uh, in Ukraine right now. But uh, we think that what will eventually happen is that uh, the settlement will occur and, uh, and he will have to uh, negotiate some kind of face-saving uh, agreement. But the thing is, they can't hold what they have. I don't want them in the Donbass region. I don't want them in Crimea. Crimea. If they stay there, that's not cataclysmic, but I don't think that's right. But if they're going to hold on to Odessa, the Black Sea, shore areas, uh, Maripol, no way can we allow that to happen. Can they just uh, just creep up in the north and take some of that area, make it a buffer zone? We can't let that happen because you're reinforcing this butcher behavior. And you let them think that they, to some degree they could spin it as if they won, even though they didn't. But the losses, Ukraine, I'm not looking to minimize. The devastation, I'm not looking to soft pedal. 1.4 million, it's probably going to be up to 4 million, had their lives destroyed and in many cases lost. General Jack Keane, militarily, about what he's seen. Cut eight. Ukrainian aircraft are still flying, and that absolutely stuns me that the Russians uh, have not been able to gain air superiority and take, and take the Ukrainian aircraft down and also some of their defense systems. Their cyber attack, which is an instrument of national power that the Russians are very good at, and, and we assess they're good at it, uh, has had negligible effect uh, on this campaign. And their casualties are way higher than anybody's expectations here. And I think they're being very deceptive about it. Hey, listen, General Keene, you've heard him on our show. He had no problem criticizing Trump, but also was very heartened by the, his hard stance on his hard stance on Iran, was heartened by the Abraham Accords, and he was heartened that he decided to give hard weapons, legitimate weapons, javelins and stingers to Ukraine. I wish he gave more, but at least he gave some. And now you have President Biden turn around a shipment that overlapped administrations. And now is rushing to get it in. As much as I respect President Biden's decision to tell everyone the, about the intelligence that the Russians were going to make up some story, some false flag operation to invade, and this invasion did take place and they are trying to make things up, I don't like the fact that we didn't rush in arms as well as supplies. So having said that, Looking at the fact that President Obama, after they took Crimea and the Donbass region, gave them blankets and gave them MREs, it still amazes me that political people who masquerade as diplomats like Fiona Hill, former senior director of National Security Council, still tries to blame Trump. Listen to this. Certainly there was an awful lot done by the administration, also by Congress and by um, Ambassador Haley herself at the United Nations. But I think that just the one point that sums everything up that you yourself touched on is that President Trump, at a pretty critical period, withheld military assistance to Ukraine that was desperate for us at that particular juncture, basically to get Volodymyr Zelensky to do him a personal favor. Okay. I don't agree with President Trump having Rudy Giuliani run around and try to use leverage to find out what President Biden was up to, which is unscrupulous. I, I never agreed with that. Do I think he should have been impeached? No. But that three-month pause has nothing to do with the fact that they don't have as many arms and supplies as possible. 
They used a little bit of leverage. That's the same thing President Biden, as vice president, was going back and forth, saying, I want you to fire that prosecutor, and we're not going to arm you or give you anything. So maybe for one or two months, when President Zelensky came in, President Biden was, President Trump was slow to give him aid, and maybe held it out for three months. As I mentioned, I don't approve of that. But it has nothing to do with the current conflict we're in right now and the readiness of it. No way, a three-month pause has nothing to do with it. The fact that the Germans wouldn't let Overseed anybody go over land with arms is a problem. The fact that Estonia, Lithuania, as well as uh, Poland started arming at a good rate uh, Ukraine until the war actually started is a problem. But a three-month pause over the course of six years is not a problem. At all. And that's when I look at people that are supposedly diplomats. I'll give you an example. Uh, um, uh, Ambassador Taylor was on with us on Friday, I think. Ambassador Taylor famously had some uh, contentious relationship towards the end with President Trump. The guy will not bring up anything political. He will not bring up President Trump as great or bad. He just wants to solve the problem because he cares about Ukraine. Fiona Hill, who people put on a mantle now because she testified against Donald Trump— who I think we should examine her background extensively to find out what she is up to, now uses this time to go after Trump. And that's what they're doing now. They're saying, well, Trump, imagine if he was uh, dealing on the, on the level with Zelensky for the, all four years. Nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with his overall effectiveness. And as he was working at a deal in a one-on-one relationship with, at the United Nations with Zelensky, in comes the impeachment call by none other then Speaker Pelosi. So I want to take your calls. I want to talk about what's going on with the domestic production as it comes to purchasing 600 million plus barrels of oil from Russia. I'm heartened by the fact that Democrats and Republicans are on the same page on this. I'm mystified that the President Biden has not got on the same page and said we're going to get our oil and gas elsewhere. I'll explain what does bother me about the bipartisanship because where they get partisan is how we replace that's 600 million barrels. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. A very important, a very important day. We'll take your calls next. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I was going to say, you're for this right now. If the president doesn't, it feels like he's going to move in that direction. Will Republicans forego criticizing him for increased gas prices? No, wait, George, you've got to do two things at the same time. 
and you should be able to. You have to ban Russian oil, and you have to increase domestic production. And that is where Joe Biden's going to have the problem, because he's held captive by the environmental left. That when John, Kerry, when John Kerry, his guy, said last week that the real tragedy of Ukraine is it's slowing our efforts on climate change. That will summarize what the far left's view is about domestic oil production. Uh, that is Governor Chris Christie, who came armed. Stop buying $600 million barrels of oil. We could understand that. But don't tell me i got to pay more for gas. Before the Russians were still online, we are already paying between 4 and $5. So don't act like that's the fault. Drill more from domestic production. Get it up marginally in North Dakota, marginally over in Alaska, marginally up in Texas. Release some leases. That's called leadership, not being led by your party. William, listen on WTRC in South Bend. Hey, William. Hey, Brian, thanks for taking my call. <clears throat> you know, it's it, I typically will react that same way, that can you believe this type of attitude? But it goes even deeper than that. This is just absolutely mind-blowing. Who's really calling the shots? It can't be Biden. Who's really making these decisions behind the scenes? It's just – it's. I, I, it's ludicrous. How can you not go back to doing something that's going to take care of the American people first and foremost? You know, what's interesting is, you know, the, the shale, the fracking really came to prominence under Obama. It's not that he wanted it. It just rose up at that time. He didn't stop it. And he kept saying, I'm not going to stop fracking. But he doesn't allow the expansion of fracking on uh, federal land. Do you know who was putting together a campaign against fracking? Russia. Because that was a direct hit on what they wanted was to corner the oil market or continue to be a big player in the oil market. Russia was afraid of our fracking. If President Obama says, and I know people in my own party are not going to be happy, but we're going to continue, we're going to go back to fracking at a high level. This is a worldwide crisis. In order, in order to avoid World War III and not uh, un, um, inexplicably and inexcusably, hurting the American and European consumer, I am going to increase oil and gas production. And we'll just have to understand that for now, while at the same time accelerating R&D when it comes to renewables. That's called leadership. It's very simple. Rich, listening on the Fox News Radio app in Scranton. Hey, Rich. Hey, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate your uh, knowledge and history. Thank you. But uh, my thing is, though, this the political year, this political theater and chicanery is running thin for them. So when they have to start drilling for oil here because uh, between electric cars, uh, I heard you on Fox and Friends this morning talking about uh, the one, I don't know, the congressman about the windmills coming out of Rhode Island or Long Island or Rhode Island. Uh, that, that's not going to work. We know, and I live in a very heavy left area, and it's running thin with them. Between these gas prices and everything else with the fuel going up, these people can't survive on this. And that's what I think. The chicanery is running thin. I I agree with you. Can someone see when things get really clear, when there's a war or a pandemic or, you know, there's some of the things that we witnessed before, you just have to pivot away from ideology and towards practicality. And you just make the announcement. I mean, if I'm a leader, if I want to be a governor or a president or a mayor, I relish these opportunities. That's why I would run for office. You don't do it to get rich. You don't do it to feed your ego. You do it because you feel as though your years of experience allow you to lead a country you love at the right time. So do the right thing. Do what Joe Manchin's doing right now to his party. We have to drill more while continuing 
to push R&D on renewable energy. That's responsible. Elon Musk has electric cars. You know what he said? Let's get nuclear and gas production up. It's not in his best interest to say that, is it? When we come back, Andy Card. From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. We outnumber them five wow. to one as an alliance. Hey, we outspend them yeah. 15 to one. We outnumber them in ground troops four to one. He's not going to cross a NATO border in anger, but we ought to do all that we can to support the Ukrainians. I agree. Uh, and I think the one thing we're seeing, since Russia can't handle the Ukraine, they do hate Russia more than ever, and they despise the soldiers. They're not convincing any hearts and minds. In fact, the first major, um, the first major city to fall uh, now uh, to, to uh, Russian troops is now have to witness the Ukrainians in Kyrgyzstan protesting the presence of Russia in that small town. I think of one million people or 500. I can't remember between 500,000 and one million. I've never been there, obviously. So they're protesting. So they're not afraid of the Russian troops and the Russians can't hold it. They can't hold any major city, nor can they take them. But what they're doing is instead of pulling back and recalibrating like a Western power would do, they're groznying the whole place. They're raising the whole town. They're getting rid of the entire city. And what they're doing is killing women and children. They have snipers at the edge of cities shooting families. So they become more brutal because they have no skills. It's absolutely incredible we're witnessing, but five major cities are gradually being encircled. But don't worry. As sad as that is and as tough as it's going to be, they don't have the troops to sustain this. If they wanted to keep this country down, 800,000 to a million Russian forces, if they are well-trained. They don't have them. They don't exist. They pare down their military forces in numbers. They get high quality. Evidently, I don't know the details, haven't seen the footage, but in 2008, they weren't impressed by the way they took those two provinces in Georgia. And then 2014, when they took the Donbass region and Crimea, it was much harder than they ever imagined. And that was pretty much an untrained Ukrainian force. So things aren't going well for Russia. And they have to. They cannot stop now because of Vladimir Putin's personal lack of self-esteem. And they're going to have talks today. I understand it. They're talking about humanitarian corridors. I wouldn't trust it. But in some of these cities, there's no water and there's no electric, obviously no heat. Still winter over there, five degrees, according to some of our reporters. So they might have to take that chance. So obviously, President Zelensky, I could not have more respect for him, nor should you. But he's asking for something that they can't deliver, and that's a no-fly zone. Why? Because when you have a no-fly zone, you have to enforce it. And if the Russians go and breach that and you shoot them, we have a shooting war. And as was pointed out to me, we were able to survive and win the Cold War by almost agreeing that we're not going to shoot directly at each other. We'll use proxies, North Korea, Vietnam, an example, uh, in Cuba. Got it. Understood. So General Keith Kellogg had a third option. Cut 10. Maybe you can get a U.N. no-fly zone that puts a cap over Russia. And then Russia starts to say, you know, this is getting a little bit too hard. What I mean by that is economically it's too hard. Politically, it's too hard. Now it's military too hard. And you have to get to that point because we've got to make it so hard on Putin, so hard on the Russians, they've got to stop. So listen to some of the companies that have pulled out. Uh, So Japan is pulling out the Toyota plant. 
Uh, TikTok is gone. Disney's gone. No Netflix, no Microsoft, no Apple, no Dell, no GM. Now, two of the big four uh, accounting firms, Price Waterhouse, as well as the other big one was it was KPMG. They have pulled out their accounting firms out of Russia. They pulled them off the SWIFT system in some some accounts except for energy accounts, which makes Russia want to push to China's version of the SWIFT, SWIFT system, which is something called Union. Good luck with that. And so far, most people agree that China has not been overtly or making it very clear that they're going to side with Russia in this, calling for a cease of the violence, blaming the West for it happened. But there's not a lot of that saber rattling and the anti-West rhetoric coming out of China. I actually think from what I've seen so far, this, this being gummed down and seeing the Russians underperform like they are, and seeing the, how alienated Russia's become with the worst yet to come, I think that China's thinking twice. Is it really worth just getting rid of Taiwan because they're a democracy? We all know they're not a threat. So there's some good things coming out of this horrific move to invade a country. But to give President Biden high marks. Now, I also, we all saw that poll, or perhaps you did, in the Washington Post that said President Biden has 47% approval rating uh, in March as compared to February, where it was 30 4% on average. Now, when you have a dramatic swing like that, when you're not even leading a war, nor are men and women fighting this war, it makes me think that might be an aberration, an outlier. Stephen Hayes said, before you take a bow and say, good job, President Biden, for uniting, you should understand Zelensky is the one who united Europe, NATO, and got them to listen to us in some cases. Cut 18. I think it was clever at the beginning for the Biden administration to go public as quickly as they did with the intelligence that yeah. we were gathering. It was a smart thing. I think it was effective, not because it was a deterrent, but because it made clear that Vladimir Putin was lying about what he was about to do. Right. But it also created this gap between what he was saying, what the president was saying, what the administration was saying, in terms of the significance of this war, what it would likely mean, reshaping the way the Western world operates, and what we were doing. We were laid on sanctions. We didn't initially sanction Putin. We were laid on SWIFT. We, we didn't send the arms before the war that we're now rushing into theater. And so that's, and that's a guy who, uh, not a big fan of Trump, pointed out problems with the past administration. But you can't just give uh, President Biden a pat on the back because these things that he said we couldn't do, like Nord Stream 2, you can't take it offline. It's almost done. It's offline. And it's not done. And now it's underwater because it's not thoroughly financed. Get Nord Stream 1 done. A true leader would do this. A true leader would say we're going to push LNG to get natural gas over to Europe and quickly supplant gradually or, or, or automatic or, or rapidly to get Europe, give them an ability to get off Russia's natural gas. And right now Russia's keeping it flowing because they need the money. And they need to add the export. And, your, and Europe needs the gas and electric. The gas and oil. But if we could provide, be their number one supplier, at even a discount rate in the short term, that's leadership. Back with Andy Card in a moment. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I do think we have to worry about him moving against Moldova. I don't think he'd, he'd re- have to be really stupid to, to move against Finland and Sweden, who are EU members and who are very, very you know, close partners of the United States and the EU. But this blue wall is really important because Putin has succeeded in redrawing the map of Europe. 
he has succeeded in bringing about his worst nightmare, which is a reinvigorated NATO that's rediscovered its pur purpose, that is absolutely united, and that is going to put additional forces all along this border, which is exactly what he didn't want. And it's a bit of race. Uh, all those things is 100% correct. But I also thought Neil Ferguson had a great point, too, with uh, he's with the Hoover Institute. This kind of a race. You know, they are taking cities. Uh, they are killing people. They are taking land. But they're also losing a lot of their soldiers. And we don't know when they're going to lose the public sentiment because the public doesn't really know much what's going on, we understand. But get this. There's over 7,000 Russian protesters in jail. They're supposed to get minimum 10-year sentences. You got 7,000 already? Wait till they find out that they've lost about 5,000 of their kids in a war that they totally made happen. They conjured up an enemy. They pretended as if they were Nazis. No one buys it. Russians know there's you know, no Nazis in the Ukraine. President's Jewish. So here's what Neil Ferguson said. Cut 28. When you're dealing with a nuclear power, you have to keep reminding the nuclear enemy, we have nukes too, and by the way, we have more and better, more accurate nukes than you, so don't even think about it. We didn't do that. Yeah, he goes on. Cut 21. If we can just help Zelensky hold out, right. make sure right. that he has enough hardware to get the Russians properly bogged down in the suburbs of Kiev, then it may not take too long for the Russian economic collapse to lead to one of those dramatic and unexpected uh, sequences of events that changes the world forever. It is. It's fascinating to see this happen. And I just love the fact that the Russians, who we made 10 feet tall or 12 feet tall, have such uh, uh, such outdated equipment, have such bad tactics, bad leadership, horrible fighters, lack of coordination. They're fighter jets. They're all outmanned. Uh, in terms of these MiGs, they want uh, the Russian jets. They want no part of our jets. Do you remember we're sitting here with precision drones? They can't even get precision planes. Here's James Carafano, cut 22. So it's not just about Ukraine. It's reabsorbing the post-Soviet states. Then it's about having dictatorial control over Central Europe and ultimately about pushing the United States out, uh, isolating the United States and seeing NATO dissolve. And the biggest cheerleader for this we can never forget is China. This is exactly what China wants. China wants a weakened and divided Europe that isolates the United States because the one thing that China and Russia and Iran all have in common is it's a zero-sum game for them. Every expansion of their power requires a diminishment of ours. And it hasn't happened. As James Carafano, the, the uh, vice president of Heritage Foundation, it hasn't happened. Joe, listen to WRC on Long Island. Joe. Brian, good morning. Listen, I just can't believe we're going to buy oil from the commie down there in Venezuela. I know. And the we, we can't. This, this is what Joe Biden brought us to, the most incompetent leadership. He caused this war. He shut our oil down. They're killing the kids. Now we have to do something after the fact. Four years with Trump, no war. And now we have to worry about this madman who's got 6,000 nukes over there. That's the one thing. $140 a barrel now. Maduro's a killer. AOC, Omar, Tlaib, Kerry, uh, they all love this guy, Maduro, down there. Now we're going to him for oil? Well, but, uh, like, and you've already said it, the fracking, we were energy independent. I'm spending so much money on gas, 75 every day, 
$50, $75 in my van, $48 under Trump, filled it. The American people were doing wonderful. We were booming. We were skyrocketing. And this incompetent man got in there, and his leadership, Brian, has done this to us. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's been uh, pretty terrible. It's been uh, it is pre- pretty wide, pretty much why he's been 34 percent approval rating. He was unable to convince the Europe tactics one Germany to do a, a single thing. France said we'll take the lead because Joe Biden wasn't. So he had Macron, who's who's rotate. It's a rotating position. He's head of the EU right now. He keeps dealing with Vladimir Putin falling flat in his face. But at least there's communication there. But you cannot say we're leading. Boris Johnson was the quickest, separate from the EU now, to supply weapons and aid. And if you listen to a lot of the international coverage, they've laud the Brits. We've done a lot, but we've been late. We did not do enough. I love the fact that Joe Biden said ahead of time that they're going to invade. They're going to invade. So why weren't we, while we were saying this publicly, if we did believe it privately, why were we not flooding them with weapons and aid? That, to me, is a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a mystery. So 97% of the Russian forces are actually in the Ukraine right now. They, they do not have a humanitarian corridor, but they're discussing it at this hour. And the third round of peace talks are taking place today. So far, according to the mayor of, which is Mayor Klitschko of Kiev, they say so far what he knows of combined 10,000 people are dead in a war of choice from Russia. Norma, listening online, appreciate it, in Connecticut. Hey, Norma. Hi. How come we can't get them the Iron Dome? I mean, it works for Israel. I know. It's too late. Uh, It's too late now. I don't think we could put it together in the middle of a war. But that's what – I don't know if you saw Admiral Fogo, who was uh, once in charge of European defense for NATO. He said that they tried to get a missile defense in there, but there was no sense of execution from the administration. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me that we have this technology and we can't share it with the people who need it the most. I know, but a lot of people listening to me right now say, why are we getting involved? Why are we involved? That was one of the questions today I did uh, I hit with one of our affiliates, and they said a lot of people are calling in saying, why do we care about the Ukraine? So if you're a politician, to their defense, if you say, hey, I'm putting an Iron Dome in Ukraine, they'll say, listen, that's a corrupt country. Uh, we don't know what's going on over there. Why are we giving our missile defense to another country so close to the Russians who might be able to turn it over to Russia or the Russians might take it by force? We don't want to share that technology. So uh, I agree with you. We should have done more for missile defense. We should have got more of that stuff in ahead of time. But humanitarian aid can't be under understated, overstated, because you look at uh, Maripol right now, there's no, there's no food, there's no water, and there's no power. I don't know what we could have done to get generators in there besides – uh, uh, but, you know, earlier, but I'm sure there would have been something. Robert, listen to WVMT over in Burlington. Robert. Yes, hi, Brian. I just want to bring up again the bad decision Biden made by canceling the XL pipeline from Alberta into the United States. I mean, that was just to please AOC and the and the Viper squad. You know, it's just unbelievable that he made that mistake and no one's talking about it. Oh, yeah, but we talk about it all the time. But they, the, the retort from Democrats is it wasn't online anyway, but it would have been. And the promise of that is what people bet on oil for. They bet on oil in the futures. They're like, look, America is going to be producing X amount of barrels in two years. It's a good bet. That's where the investment would flow. That would be a positive occurrence. Go ahead. Yes, it should have been done. All right. Uh, thanks for the call. It would have been great. A guy that does have his head about him continues to impress me. I don't care if you think I'm fawning. It's just fact. 
that Senator Joe Manchin, again, stepping up. Cut 32. Look at the gas now at $4. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because of this. Inflation's already wreaked havoc on it now. And basically, we're going to say we're going to set back now because we're afraid it might go up a little bit more. It might go up anyway, and we haven't done nothing. I'm willing to at least do something and say whatever it would take, we're going to ramp up our energy. We're going to basically produce the oil, the natural gas, build the pipelines. We've been stymied. We're not getting anything done from the standpoint energy. We can do both. We can do the energy that we need as far as in this fossil world that we live in and do it cleaner than anybody else in the world in innovation. But we can also transition to a cleaner technology. Yeah, and we could do that. And you know what's clean? Don't let anyone tell you different. Natural gas and nuclear. That's what Germany's starting to pivot to. And as Elon Musk brought up, and I'll just paraphrase, he said there's a lot of these nuclear plants have been mothballed after the tragedy, uh, the natural, uh, the tsunami that hit Japan. They said, wow, I saw the nuclear accident that happened through no fault of their own. We're going we're gonna, to um, lessen the chance of that happening, being a target of a terror attack. And we're going to do stuff that's less dangerous to the community. So they're going to go green their economy. What happened is the prices of all uh, of all utilities went flying up. So they got oil and gas from guess who? The Russians. This is not hard to figure out. It's a huge mistake. Another huge mistake. I really want to get in before this hour is over. It's what's happened with Iran. Evidently, we're close to a deal when it comes to the nuclear program that will allow them to get their oil back on market and reduce most, if not all, of the sanctions among the people who sees the folly in this because we're dealing with the Russians is Colonel Richard Kemp, the former British military commander, on with Mark Levin yesterday. Cut 40. We should not be allowing any form of normalized relationships with Russia. I believe we should sever diplomatic relations anyway. We should probably stop any Russians from traveling to our countries. We should certainly cut off trade totally with Russia, isolate them, make them a pariah state, certainly not use them to negotiate a nuclear deal with a country that has a proven track record of terrorism, extremism, that intends to have a nuclear missile arsenal that will not only threaten the Middle East, not only threaten Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, other countries in the Middle East. It will also directly threaten us. Negotiations for the deal should be immediately stopped. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it here, Brian. Kill me, Joe. Keep in mind, I'll be on the five a little bit later. And you can always order any of my books. Put this history in perspective on briankillme.com, including The President and Freedom Fighter. And, of course, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the last two. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York, but I heard around the country, heard around the world. I will say this. I've noticed in this building especially, but also through the city, people are back. Yesterday, on Friday, I was even on a train that was crowded Thursday, too. I could not believe it. Things seem to be getting back to normal. And instead of having to celebrate that moment, we got a war to look at. And I know most people are zoned in. They see the need to understand what's happening here and how it can affect us at home. I'm more than happy to outline it for you. Michael Goodwin coming up next. Katie Pavlich will talk about the president's sudden rise at at least one poll. Ten points in his approval rating. Does he really deserve that with inflation this high? With gas prices this high? I'm shocked. But maybe, maybe I'm in a bubble. Michael Goodwin standing by, so let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. President Biden stood in front of the American people after the Russian invasion, and he promised to turn Vladimir Putin into a pariah. Well, because of the fact that we continue to rely on the Russians to negotiate with Iran, it turns out that was a lie. We have sent our negotiating squad to Vienna to negotiate the Iran deal through the Russians. Yes, that Mike Mike Gallagher always making a lot of sense. The Iran deal is imminent. I am not kidding. The bad 2015 deal rebooted to be even worse now. And guess who we're counting on to help us? Russia. Sickening. Number two. This notion that somehow banning Russian oil would raise prices on American consumers is an admission that this guy, that this killer, that this butcher, Vladimir Putin, has leverage over us. So I think we have enough of it. We should produce more American oil and buy less Russian oil or none, actually none at all. Yeah, ban Russian oil from American shores. A bipartisan push for a reluctant White House to finally make that move. But the follow-up has to be we drill here at home. Instead, the White House reaching out to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. No joke. No malarkey. Number one. What we ought to do is give the Ukrainians the ability to create a no-fly zone. More stingers, more missiles that can go higher than stingers. And above all, consummate this fighter deal. Get those MiG-29s in their hands. That is Admiral Stravitas, the fight, day 12. Russia's gains in the north stall as they point their focus on the capital. Still, while their eyes gaze on the port city of Odessa, an estimated 1.4 million refugees forced from their homes, at least 10,000 killed, including many Russian soldiers, and at least 1,200 Ukrainian innocent citizens. With me right now is Michael Goodwin. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. Your column this weekend was how Putin pulled this off. We telegraphed it. He telegraphed it. Why weren't we more ready for it? Well, Brian, look, I think that is going to be one of the uh, assessments that probably will have to wait until the war is over. But, look, I, I think the immediate question is, if we're not going to do a no-fly zone, and I understand the logic behind not wanting to do that, then what are we going to do? Because if we don't, otherwise we're going to sit there and watch this massacre happen. There's no question that Putin is going to fight to the finish if he can. And that means basically reducing all of Ukraine to a pile of rubble. And everybody in it can either flee or die. I mean, that is clearly the Soviet way of war, and and that is what he has unleashed on Ukraine. And so, look, I understand Biden and many Republicans and Blinken don't want to do a uh, a no-fly zone, and because many other members of NATO don't want to either, because they think that Putin has said, in effect, you, you know, if you encounter us in the war, then that's the start of World War III, and that's when he has talked about using nuclear weapons. So you don't want to go down that road. But there have to be other things to do. And that was the point of my column, that just sitting here wringing our hands, watching this slaughter on TV. I mean, there's going to be hell to pay politically in this country if Putin, you know, stands on that rubble like Hitler going to Paris at the uh, in World War II and declares victory over Ukraine, and we have done nothing. I just think that is going to be a stain on America for a very long time. Absolutely. So what do we do about it? Talk, talk, talk about playing politics. They talk about how we got here. And they just say no one really mentions that President Obama in response. Actually, Jake Tapper did, I should say. Uh, in the, you know, after Georgia, the provinces were taken. 
Oh, we didn't really do much except some sanctions. After Donbass and Crimea was taken, we didn't really do much. We sent MREs and blankets. And it's no joke. It's not sarcasm. That's what we sent under President Obama because he wanted to reset the relationship. He thought his personality, not being George Bush, that was the problem. Bush and Putin, he could win him over. After all, the economy needed help and we could help. We couldn't do that. So then when President Trump took over, they gave him legitimate arms. Now, there was a pause there along the way. And that pause was because the president of the United States uh, stupidly sent Rudy Giuliani through the country trying to find information on Joe Biden. Whether it was there or not, I don't think the wisdom of that move can be supported. But listen to how it's being spun yesterday. I could, Fiona Hill, who pretends to be a, a, uh, somebody that uh, is a think tanker, some deep politician that stays above politics, is all about politics. Listen to this. Cut 13. Certainly there was an awful lot done by the administration, also by Congress and by um, Ambassador Haley herself at the United Nations. But I think that just the one point that sums everything up that you yourself touched on Mm -hmm. is that President Trump, at a pretty critical period, withheld military assistance to Ukraine that was desperate for us at that particular juncture, basically to get Volodymyr Zelensky to do him a personal favour. I mean, a three-month pause in an operation... That was eight years in come, six years in coming after 2014? It's an absolute lie because I, there were studies, Brian, showing that nothing was paused, that, that Trump tried to stop it, but they hadn't even finished the previous year's allocation. So there was nothing that was held back. Ukraine got everything that was. Did not realize that. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I mean, so so there was nothing lost, and so for her to say that, look, this is the this is the deep state, Brian. They they want to tell us they're above politics, but we're not buying that anymore. We saw them very involved in politics. They just they don't call it politics because they think they're the smartest people in the room, and that whatever they say is wisdom, not politics. Bull. It's their point of view, and they use and abuse their power to to buttress their point of view. That's what Fiona Hill revealed when she testified and when she continues to beat this drum. Yeah, but I just hate what she's portrayed. If you're a politician, I'm fine with that. Just do your thing. But don't tell me you're a diplomat. You're a deep thinker. You're a policy person. When you're really a political person, masquerading uh, as a policy person. So one thing I, I think overarching that I thought about this weekend is President Zelensky has united the way this country and the Western world in a way I didn't think was possible by saying the facts, by expressing how desperate the situation was, by showing great coverage. He mobilized people, not politicians, and the politicians responding to their people and people realizing I'm pretty much on the same page as you in our case, Republicans and Democrats. Chris Christie pointed that out. Cut 17. A president did unite the world. It was Zelensky, not Biden. Um, Zelensky is the one who united the world. He's the one who, right from the beginning, was very clear about what leadership was supposed to look like. We should have been arming the Ukrainians for the last year. We weren't. We should have been doing much more on domestic production of oil. Instead, we're going backwards. And we gave Putin the card to hold us hostage. And with Nord Stream 2, we gave him the card to hold Europe hostage. Your thoughts? Yeah, no question. He's right that uh, we have 
been behind the behind the pace of things all along. I mean, this is this is Joe Biden and his reluctance to to engage in these things. That it, it's always slowest. It's always late. I mean, I saw a thing over the weekend, Brian. Blinken says uh, uh, NATO trying to hold or NATO holding talks on supplying uh, uh, MiG uh, aircraft to uh, Ukraine, holding talks in the second week of a slaughter. They're talking about doing something. I mean, that is the whole thing. Remember back in the beginning about sanctions? Are they a deterrent or not? The White House gave conflicting signals. And Zelensky was very clear that you should have done all of this before the war and there might not have been a war. I think that is the message that he has been trying to deliver. If you had done sanctions early, if you had armed us in a way that that gave us a viable defense, Putin might not have attacked. Right. And I think I think that is a legitimate argument. Now, obviously, the White House will say, oh, we've done this. And look how look how united we are. Look, united is a process. That's good. But what's the result? What's the result of that unity? So far, Russia is still there killing Ukrainian civilians and leveling the cities. So, so far, that unity has not produced any definable result. That's what it's supposed to be about. Not about the process, not well, not whether NATO is having uh, happy talk meetings where they all agree on something. What are they going to do about this slaughter? Right. And, it's not, and if it's not a no-fly zone, what is it? I know. What One thing it? I would it's say, Michael, I, I am getting multiple reports that the, the weapons are flooding in. And we are seeing the Russians paying a heavy price. So my hope is they start blowing up that caravan that's been stuck in stuck uh, without fuel outside Kiev. When they start blowing up those tanks, I'll believe it, and those uh, personnel carrier, carriers. But this right. one thing I want to get I want to get to you before I have to let you go, and that is we're starting to see bipartisan push to get rid of the six hundred million dollars of daily purchases of barrels of Russian oil. I got it. But what we do next is where the rubber hits the road. We have to drill more. Even Democrat Joe Manchin agrees. Listen to what Murphy says of Connecticut and try not to laugh. If prices go up, then you are naturally, through the market mechanisms, going to have more U.S. production. Joe Manchin represents a coal state. Uh, I represent a state that's going to have a lot of wind power online very soon. And so, you know, my preference would be to try to fill in that gap with renewable energy. I would just want to make sure that in the United States, if we're going to have to fill in what we lose in Russian gas, that's not just from West Virginia coal. That's also from Long Island Sound wind power. Is he kidding? (laughs) Is he nuts? Well, look, that's what you've got to say in the Democratic Party today. You can't say oil. You can't say gas. You can't say coal. Otherwise, you're Joe Manchin. You're a Trump person. I mean, it's insane. There's nothing practical about the Democratic Party. That's what it's missing, whether it's crime or oil production or anything else. There's nothing practical about it. It's all this dreamy pie-in-the-sky transitioning to a new future, you know, Transgender athletes, crime in the cities, slow on slow on oil. 
all of these things are about some kind of future uh, benefit, but none of it deals with the here and now. And that's what I think the American public is fed up with. You know, Washington wants to control everything, but on its own timetable, on its own ideology, not on ways that, that touch ordinary humans. The one, the one exception, of course, is Democrats believe that the government should just write checks to cover everything I in know. the meantime. And, and that's part of the inflation problem. So, uh, Mike Goodwin, thanks so much. There's a lot to discuss, and uh, I just hope that the real leader emerges that puts politics second and just says, i got to do what's best for the country in a time of crisis. And believe me, if we don't stop Russia, this will be a major crisis. This also could be a great opportunity. We could stop this festering, uh, this festering wound from continuing to try to expand and rattle the cages of the West and stop them in their, tra- their tank tracks right now. Michael Goodwin, thank you. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. All right. Now, Katie Pavlich, bottom of the hour, but you're next. Uh, the, I am not diminishing the amount of pain and suffering that's happened in Ukraine, but I am also not diminishing how the glow is going off that Russian military machine, which needs to happen, thanks to the valor and the toughness of the Ukrainians. Imagine we give them more weapons. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We saw everything. Houses burning. All of the people sitting in the basements. We live in a village. Houses burning. Everyone shooting at each other. No people or anything. No communication. No water. No gas. No light. No water. There was nothing. So that's just a little of uh, the real life stories of people on the ground. And I just think if I, you know, if we continue to look at maps and talk about losses and pluses and tanks, you forget the human portion of what's happening here. And because of the brutality of the Russians that are going back to caveman philosophy, when frustrated, just drop dumb bombs on entire cities. All you do is hurt women and children. The armed forces stay there and the American and the Ukrainian people in this case get angrier. You will not win over one city. You'll take it for a day or two, and your people are going to get shot, and they're going to get harassed, and they're going to get blown up. This whole thing's going to blow up on him. And if the President Zelensky is forced from Kiev, he's going to go to leave outside the city, out west, where the Russians basically can't touch him. He'll set up an insurgency like you've never seen before. Rich, listen on WHIO in beautiful Dayton, Ohio. Hey, Rich. Yeah, WHIO. Yeah. Nobody talks about the farmer. The diesel fuel is 419, and we we don't have an alternative to go to an electric tractor or electric this exactly. or electric that. And it's 419, and the, and the and fertilizer company burned up a month ago in the one state. And so now the price of fertilizer is going to be going up. So this fall food's going to go up. Why don't nobody talk about the farmer? You're right. I, I should. I should. Together. I should do. Um, you made me aware of it. I will start doing it on TV and radio. Great point. Food's going to go up, right? You know, you shouldn't lose money while spending all day farming uh, and all week and your whole life. So food's going to go up. The price is going to go up and the working class is going to be hurt. Factor in, too, supplying the grain for most of the world is Ukraine and Russia. We're going to stop buying their grain gradually. And Ukraine has to use this period to seed and fertilize. I'm not too sure they're going to be able to. Mike, listening to in Glendora, uh, California. Hey, Mike. Hi there, uh, Brian. Two, two, two quick points. 
Um, I remember that just three weeks ago when Biden and Blinken were saying, hey, you're going to, you know, they're marshalling forces, you're going to get invaded. Didn't Zelensky say, hey, stop, stop it. Uh, you know, you're scaring my people. We're, you know, we don't believe you and on and on. I, I thought that was one thing um, that I remember. That, that was a mistake on his part, but I thought down to, I thought they were actually playing a little bit of a game because he was trying not to panic his people. My hope was he was hoarding reserves and hoarding supplies. Maybe that wasn't well, the case, but go ahead. Hopefully that's the point. That's that Hopefully he did that. Second quick thing is that, you know, they're trying to get these MiGs from Poland and, and other places. Uh, I just Googled uh, how many MiGs that uh, Russia has, and they have, you know, 2,000 MiGs. I don't know how many, you know, if there's – I don't know how many other MiGs there are in reserve. But even if they get these 62 or 100, 100 guys – uh, you know, Russia's going to just overwhelm these guys and send in, you know, 500 MIGs and, sh- and shoot them out. Because I, I, I don't think there's a, a never-ending supply of MIGs on the on the NATO side. Well, a couple of things. Whatever you say, they still have those all those uh, fighter jets. And the fighter jets don't own the skies. It's amazing. General Keene just said it. He said uh, Sunday night. I don't know if it changed today. He said it's amazing to him that the Russians don't own the, own the skies yet. And now they're getting worried. Now they got to fly higher because there's so many Stinger missiles on the ground. So good point. Thanks for doing the research. Always like it. I don't know everything to do with this conflict. I'm not seeing as much as I thought I would in this era of social media. I'm seeing such a fractured look at the fight. But I know this. Ukrainians are fighting like hell and putting all types of hurt on Russia. Even if they blow up a city, at what cost? They can't hold the city. People hate them. Hate them. And I don't blame them. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Back to the key issue here, which is the question of the of, of banning the import of oil and gas from, from Russia. You know, it is not insignificant. Uh, we actually take in more petroleum from Russia than we do from Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, so the ban will result in, and, and it also obviously affects the world supply as well. So you'll see oil go from not $100 a barrel to $150, maybe $200 a barrel. But it's extraordinary, George, for all of the, uh, the sanctions that have been imposed, and they have been unprecedented uh, on, on Russia, to sanction everything but the thing that drives their economy. And that is Jonathan Carl. Uh, you know, Jonathan Carl is uh, reporting as he sees it in a place that doesn't usually get that type of candor. Because there's bipartisan support to stop, start banning Russian oil. What happens after that is where rubber hits the road and parties differ and logic differs from illogical behavior. That's why I want to bring in Katie Pavlich, town hall editor. He's here over Fox News and Fox News Sunday uh, yesterday. Katie, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, I wanted to make the easy part the beginning. Uh, the easy part is both parties, including Nancy Pelosi and many on the, on the left, are saying, yeah, let's stop importing Russian oil. Does that surprise you? It surprises me in, in the sense that um, they are now, you know, if you support banning Russian oil, you're essentially supporting higher gas prices in the United States as a result of the policies that Nancy Pelosi um, supports. Uh, I'm not surprised that there's a bipartisan push against Vladimir Putin and what he's been doing in Ukraine. It gets worse by the day in terms of bombing civilians and the photos that we're seeing. The front page of the New York Times today is really a clear depiction of what's happening there. I think a lot of the time we don't actually see 
photos and video of, of the carnage uh, because we say it's too graphic, but uh, it's, it's war as hell and that's what's happening there. Uh, on the issue of where the administration has put themselves, they've backed themselves into a corner here because they have completely shoved aside this idea that energy, meaning oil and gas, is a national security issue and they have not made it a priority. Instead, they have put climate change at the center of their foreign policy agenda. And now we're seeing that that is causing major pain for the administration in the sense that on one hand, they're saying that they don't want to sanction Russian oil or stop importing it because it's a small portion of what we import in this country. At the same time, they're saying if we do stop importing it, that Americans will see their prices go through the roof at the pump. And they've, you know, because of their own domestic war on energy, they've backed themselves into this place where they don't have any good choices, right? They allow Putin to continue funding his war machine. And then at the same time, prices continue to go up in the United States as a result of the conflict, but also because prices were already going up as a result of Biden's domestic energy agenda. And Brian, it's not that they don't believe in oil and gas. It's a, it's a virtue signaling campaign that they're on, because if they truly didn't believe in oil and gas, they wouldn't now be looking all over the globe, as Joe Biden is doing today, and saying, well, maybe we'll import Iranian oil. We're going to send State Department diplomats over the weekend to Venezuela to sit down with the Maduro regime, who, by the way, technically right now, the State Department doesn't even recognize as the president exactly. of Venezuela. They recognize the other guy. Uh, or we can ask the Saudis to pump more oil. And by the way, we're still going to import Russian oil. So it's not that they don't like oil. John Kerry loves oil for his private jets that he takes around the world to talk about climate change. It's that they don't want uh, domestic oil. And Ted Cruz last week said that Joe Biden has sanctioned, you know, sanctioned in in terms of a, a, a broader idea, domestic oil producers more than he has punished Russia um, and put sanctions on importing Russian oil. And that's true when you take a look at the Keystone Pipeline, the fact that it would have you know, flown uh, 700,000 barrels a day into the U.S. Now we're seeing that we get about 500,000 barrels a day from Russia. It would have made up the gap. And for the administration to say, as Jen Psaki did last week, that, well, the Keystone Pipeline would take a long time to get back on board. It's not an immediate solution. Right. Well, it's going to take a long time. You should probably get started because this issue of energy being a national security problem is not going away. Yeah, right. If gas is already $4 a gallon, if you go ahead and take Russia out of it, just 7% of it, if we're already used to it being high, what you do is immediately say we're going to start drilling elsewhere, Alaska, North Dakota, and just say this is going to be the production. And these these investors in commodities and oil uh, futures will say, okay, we're, we're getting somebody to fill the gap there. Maybe we might want to use a friendlier country like Mexico or uh, Canada to fill the gap. So Europe has this. I was uh, I was interested in this stat. Europe produces 3.6 mil, uh, million barrels a day of oil. They need 15 million. So they also Europe produces 230 billion cubic meters of natural gas a year. They use 560 billion for coal. Europe has 950 million tons of coal the year they use. They produce half that. So guess who comes to save the day? Russia provides 20% of their oil, 40% of their gas, and 20% of their coal. Now, we are seeing a push, unless it's all lip service, to start going back to nuclear in Europe. We have to step up and be their number one supplier of natural gas, which I understand the infrastructure is not quite there, but we're close if we have a focus. This could be a great moment in time right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you've seen from the White House, it's kind of disingenuous argument that it's somehow the oil companies in the U.S. who have all of these uh, drilling permits on existing federal leases. Well, they may have the leases, but the, the Bureau of Land Management still has to approve each one of those permits to dig a new well, and they are not approving those permits for them to do so. And Joe Biden has a, a situation here where, as we just talked about, it's a bipartisan issue to stop importing uh, oil from Russia. He has been led so far down this uh, illogical, unsustainable climate change agenda by the left, the Green New Deal, so to speak, that it's almost like you can't get out of it, even though a very small minority of the country supports such an aggressive uh, alternative energy agenda at a time when the world still runs on oil, we're in an emergency, and the alternative sources just aren't making up the gap when it comes to needing to deal with the problem right now, whether it's high energy prices mm -hmm. for Americans and Europeans, or whether it's stopping uh, the flow of you know, blood money into a country that is slaughtering civilians in an unprovoked war. Yeah, I just don't know how this, you know, the no-fly zone, I understand the reasons not to do it, but the current situation of just hoping for the best while Russia uh, thuggishly and amateurishly and brutally, uh, uh, without conscience, just tries to raise city, uh, raise cities and kill as many innocent people as possible. So we have to find an answer there. But one answer isn't to sanction and isolate Russia. At the same time, beg them to sit down at the table with us and convince Iran right. to get back in a bad nuclear deal. Here's what Congressman Mike Gallagher said about this. Cut 43. So here's the hard truth. President Biden stood in front of the American people after the Russian invasion, and he promised to turn Vladimir Putin into a pariah. Well, because of the fact that we continue to rely on the Russians to negotiate with Iran, it turns out that was a lie. We have sent our negotiating squad to Vienna to negotiate the Iran deal through the Russians. And the Russians are demanding that their flow of weapons, commodities, and trade with Iran be exempted from any U.S. sanctions. So Russia will get a massive win with this deal. They will step into the vacuum that our appeasement creates in the Middle East. But, Trey, that may not even be the worst part. This deal is, will also be a massive win for China because China wants crude suppliers they can control. So mm -hmm. why, why we're doing this, why they seem to be okay with this, is getting out, there's got to be national outrage who is sitting at a table letting Lavrov and company fly into Vienna and do this deal with us. Well, and first of all, I mean, the fact that this new Iranian nuclear agreement is going to be announced this week and the American people, including a number of people and most people in Congress, know nothing about what's actually in it. It's been negotiated in secret. And we know what happened last time around when the Obama administration negotiated in secret and was flying pallets of cash into Iran to pay them off. Uh, we're now in a situation where the Russians are negotiating at the table with the Iranians and have said that none of the sanctions that we are putting on them in terms of Ukraine can apply to the Iran nuclear agreement, which means that Russia has a backdoor to evade these sanctions, which is a big reason why they feel like that they can continue to uh, – you know, inflict this pain and suffering on Ukraine because they are going to get a backdoor uh, away from those sanctions this week, whether it's with Iran or whether it's through uh, China. And the other issue here is, you know, I mentioned the State Department sending diplomats to Venezuela over the weekend to talk about maybe lifting sanctions on Venezuela to import Venezuelan oil to fill the gap should they decide to sanction Russian oil. Well, Venezuela for years has helped Russia evade 
sanctions. Russia has helped Venezuela evade sanctions. We are using allies who are both enemies to us uh, to, to fill the gap when we could do it domestically. But we're emboldening this, this trio of Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, while also China is watching and looking at their business prospects, and as you mentioned, who they can get in, in business with and then control them and have even more leverage over the West as we've seen them out all throughout Africa, through South Africa, in terms of their uh, taking over entire industries and demanding payment and loyalty for that. And so, so none yeah. of it makes any sense when you have domestic um, drilling available. <laughs> this could all happen and go away if they just change their policy. Don't ask me how this is, but the reports that I saw out of this Iran deal, uh, they say that they're putting mechanisms in there that no president that would follow Joe Biden would be able to change it or no administration would be able to change it. I've never heard of that. How do you have an agreement not passed through Congress that no future government can right. change? So evidently they're writing that in, which is why, um, is, which is why Iran <laughs> seems so happy to do it. What do you think about the Washington Post poll that has President Biden's approval rating go from 34 percent in February to 47 percent now and a approval rating of his actions in Ukraine at 52 percent? Katie Pavlich, what is your take on this? Well, the first thing is that I think the majority of Americans are tired after 20 years of war and they don't want to get the United States involved militarily in the sense of troops going into another country at this moment. And Joe Biden has delivered on that uh, in Ukraine. And, um, you know, he's been able to push off the results of the investigation of the Afghanistan catastrophe and distract the public from consequences and responsibility for that entire uh, debacle. Um, But also during his State of the Union address, if you're someone who is maybe not a a super political person and you watch Joe Biden give that speech, he sounded like the Joe Biden that people voted for on the campaign trail. We haven't seen that person uh, while he's been in in the White House. He has governed from a very far left perspective. But when he talked about the border, he talked about crime, he talked about unity and coming together. Um, we can debate, you know, <laughs> if he actually means that and his actions over the past year. Yeah, yeah uh, the past year haven't, you know, added up to that. But if you're watching it, and you don't pay attention to day to day politics. What he said sounded like he was a centrist willing to work with both sides of the aisle for the future of the country. Right. Because uh, the problem is the border is an absolute catastrophe. The problem is nobody, no, no, no police officer, not their families, not the retired men and women, not anyone that's a supporter of the police officer thinks that. Uh, the thinks that President Biden has been in their corner. Maybe he doesn't say defund, but what has he done to stop the defund movement? Almost nothing, but actually nothing. And then when you come well, to the situation, yeah, <laughs> so right. When you come to the situation in Europe, it's President Zelensky that united the world. I'd be the first to say it if President Biden was able to use his forty years of experience to unite NATO in Europe. But it was Zelensky's mm-hmm. urgent pleading that continues, and his communication skill that has everybody united for seemingly and Germany among people changing their policy. Right. Well, and domestically, Brian, you talked about how Joe Biden hasn't done anything to support the police. Uh, He talked a big game at the state of the union last week when he said, we need to fund the police. But if you look at the people he's put in charge at the department of justice, if they don't change the policies or the personnel in charge, nothing's going to change when it comes to crime going down. Uh, You have Kristen Clark, who is a associate attorney general or deputy attorney general. I'm not, I can't remember exactly what her title is, but number two or three at the justice department who 
advocated for defunding the police. Uh, they are actively not going after criminals. They're going after law enforcement agencies and focusing their attention on them rather than on repeat offenders and maybe hardening some of these sentencing guidelines for federal crimes and working with local prosecutors because the local prosecutors in places where a lot of this crime is happening in L.A. and New York Mm -hmm. and San Francisco and Philadelphia all subscribe to the same kind of defund the police attitude and that criminals you know, can somehow justify their behavior because they've been wronged by the justice system that needs to be torn down and built up in this social justice ideology. And so, you know, unless, you know, personnel of policies, so unless he changes uh, some of the policies he's had people implementing at these departments, nothing is going to change. And people will see that. So he does risk saying something at the State of the Union, but not following through, much like he didn't follow through on his campaign promises to unify the country. Katie, when do we see you on the channel this week? Uh, I will be on the five, I believe. No, not the five. Next week I'll be on the five. Uh, this week I'll be on special report tomorrow, and I'll be on Kennedy tonight. Sounds good. Uh, Katie Pavlich, always great. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon, Brian. Thanks. And, and you can follow her at Katie, P-A-V-L-I-C-H. Hey, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 from uh, what's happening in the Ukraine to politics here at home. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show of the people for the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We will not forgive the destroyed houses. We will not forgive the missile that our air defense shot down over Okmadi today and more than 500 other such missiles that hit our land all over Ukraine, hit our people and children. We will not forgive the shooting of unarmed people, destruction of our infrastructure. We will not forgive. A fleeing citizen forced to, uh, one of the 1.7 million that have been forced to leave the Ukraine, talk about the real destruction and the anger towards Russia, justifiable in every way. Brian, listening in North Dakota. Hey, Brian. I'm sorry, Lewis, listening in Pennsylvania, my bad. Hey, Lewis. Yes, great show, Brian. I just want to talk about the the fracking. I, I think you're, you're, you're entirely right. I think we can up the production, but I don't think it'll be in time. I think we have to uh, <clears throat> proceed with it, but I, I, I'd like to see it not near my house. You know, I mean, in the past, they were, they were like 600 feet from people's homes, and that, that's, that's, that's not right. I think uh, they have to have an adjusted setback policy. Anyway, uh, the consumption of oil should be reduced by grounding some business jets that are non-essential. That would be great, like some oligarchs. Yeah, and also uh, passenger capacity on the airliners should be – they should should only run those airlines, uh, airplanes, uh, with uh, greater than 80 percent – uh, capacity, passenger capacity. Uh, I yeah, think listen, should... that's, that's around the edges. Right now we need major purchases to fill the gap, and we need major drilling uh, to improve in North Dakota and Alaska and Texas. That could do it. Then you pledge to get some pipelines going, which which are clean. Uh, you know, they are safer. It's safer than putting it on rail or truck. And then you say we're in a war footing. We're fighting for the free uh, freedom of what the Western culture and to not to not the, you know, to not the uh, elimination of Eastern Europe as part of the Soviet spear. People understand that. 
There's a responsible way to do it. Elon Musk, Mr. Electric Car, says the same thing. Go for nuclear energy, too. Unless uh, Russia decides to open up uh, and fire on it, nuclear energy is safe. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you are. And uh, keep it right here. Keep in mind, too, you can get more of me tonight on The Five. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Happy to be coming to you from New York. Crime-ridden, subway's a mess, but people are back and heard around the country, heard around the world. Senator Roger Marshall will be with us shortly. Uh, he could, he's in a, a representing a place couldn't be more different from this place, and that is Kansas. He wants to make a major move, and I hope he gets bipartisan support. He'll tell you that in a second. And then we have Miranda Devine, who points out in her New York Post column today that guess who people are blaming for, uh, blaming for this uh, war in Ukraine? Trump. I'll explain, but I will never defend. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. President Biden stood in front of the American people after the Russian invasion, and he promised to turn Vladimir Putin into a pariah. Well, because of the fact that we continue to rely on the Russians to negotiate with Iran, it turns out that was a lie. We have sent our negotiating squad to Vienna to negotiate the Iran deal through the Russians. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Iran deal imminent. I'm not kidding. The bad, bad deal of 2015 rebooted to be even more slanted towards the evil regime. Now here in 2022 and Russia's helping. How are they even allowed to travel there? We'll discuss. Number two. This notion that somehow banning Russian oil would raise prices on American consumers is an admission that this guy, that this killer, that this butcher, Vladimir Putin, has leverage over us. So I think we have enough of it. We should produce more American oil and buy less Russian oil or none, actually none at all. Yeah, I hear you. Ban Russian oil from American shores. That's what Senator Marshall's talking about, a bipartisan push. Sure. The White House still reluctant. Sure. Why? I'll explain. Number one. What we ought to do is give the Ukrainians the ability to create a no-fly zone, more stingers, more missiles that can go higher than stingers, and above all, consummate this fighter deal, get those MiG-29s in their hands. Admiral James Stravitas making a lot of sense. The fight here on day 12. Russia gains in the north stall as they point their focus on the capital city and in the south, the port city of Odessa. An estimated 1.4 to 1.7 million refugees are forced into eastern Europe. They're able to accept it for now, but the Russians, so inept on the battlefield, are only good at one thing. Killing civilians and just destroying a citizen uh, buildings arbitrarily. With me right now is Senator Roger Marshall. Uh, Senator, welcome back. How much does this kill you to watch these Ukrainians being killed? Well, yeah, good morning, Brian. I I saw some videos last night, and uh, my wife and I were chatting. This is why I think Vladimir Putin could lose the war, is that the world is not going to sit there and watch this. People that were kind of neutral and on the on, on the sideline are like, oh, my gosh, you need to do more. We did four or five town halls this weekend, and this was the topic. What more can America do to help these brave Ukrainians? Uh, their courage has inspired all of us. Um, it, it, uh, my gosh, to see the, the civilians, the children killed, boy, you know, there's a special place in hell 
for Vladimir Putin. Can you and, believe um, they have lost, if yeah. some of these reports are correct, Senator, they have lost as many people in two weeks of fighting, less than two weeks of fighting, than we lost in all 20 years in Iraq. And they're not even trying to avoid civilian casualties. If we have an incident in the battlefield, it's investigated for years. People are fired on the spot. And if there's a problem, if something happens, it's considered a mistake. This is considered part of their philosophy. Third round of peace talks today. It's been said that Russia can't quit now because they'll be humiliated at the same time they're still killing people. What do you propose? Well, I, the number one sanction we could do to stop this war is, of course, is an oil embargo. I've been talking about the importance of American energy independence and its impact at the gas pump, but also on national security for years. I was born and raised in the oil patch. There's a concept up here in D.C. They think you can just turn on a faucet. We're going to start making this oil. But there is an all-of-government war right now against the oil industry. Uh, the, the feds are trying to make it hard to loan money to these people. Uh, the, the, the EPA is making it hard to get permitting. The, they're using the Endangered Species Act to shut down oil wells. So what I'm proposing is to get this embargo today. And, of course, we need to get jets to, to Poland. We need to make that happen as well. And we need to go along with Lindsey Graham's plan of trying Vladimir Putin as a war criminal. Uh, what you are describing and what we're all seeing are these war crimes. And the biggest difference between today and when I was growing up and watching Vietnam is we're seeing this live. We're seeing everybody's video camera, cameras from, from home watching this, almost like, the, like you're in the living room with these people. And I think that's what's going to be the wrath of the entire world down upon Vladimir Putin. We're going to isolate him. Uh, we're going to starve him to death. 50% of their economy is oil-related. That's the big domino we have to go after. Absolutely. Uh, we have to, and that's what you said. You're going to put up for a vote of legislation that bans oil imports from Russia. We have to make up the $600 million, and the President of the United States is pushing back on his own party and scrambling to Venezuela and Iran to see if they could fill the gap reportedly in Saudi Arabia. Is that okay with you? Of course, of course not. We're asking our enemies to help our enemies. When, when has that ever worked for anybody? Uh, but this is a result of Joe Biden's uh, policies. I described this all-of-government war already on the oil industry, but, but there's this evil axis going across the world right now, this evil axis of, of nations, of, of Russia, China, uh, Iran and, and North Korea. Russia wants to own the world. I mean, sorry, Russia wants to rule the world. China wants to own the world. And Iran and North Korea want to blow up the world. Um, and, and we're funding it, by the way. We're funding it with blood money. Uh, I, I want you to hear Zelensky. He spoke again uh, today. Cut one. Think about the sense of impunity of the invaders. They announced their planned atrocities. Why? Because there is no reaction. Because there is silence. Not a word. As if the Western leaders have dissolved tonight. The audacity of the aggressor is a clear signal to the West that sanctions against Russia are not enough. And that's, uh, and he went on to say, they have to close the skies. I don't think we can do that. But Admiral Stavridis brought up a good point. He goes, why don't we give them enough Stinger missiles and a missile defense system to allow them to close through their own no-fly zone? Yeah, Brian, I was on the Zoom call this weekend uh, with President Zelensky, and he's certainly a modern-day brave heart. His courage, the bravery, the bravery of, the, of, the, of uh, the Ukrainian people has inspired all of us. And we've got to move quickly. 
But right now, of course, my Democrat friends are not going to let a crisis go to waste. Very simply, what he asked for, of course, was to control the airspace, and we're not going to be able to do that right now. I think it should be on the table, though, but he, he needs those jets. He needs the MiG-29 jets that are sitting in Poland and Romania. Uh, so we need to move those forward, but someone's going to have to pay to help backfill them, and we can't leave Poland and Romania defenseless either against this uh, terrorist Putin as, as well. So we need to act quickly. We need to fund the $10 billion. But think about this. The Democrats are trying to tie the $10 billion to $22 billion of more COVID funding, even though we have over $100 billion setting there. And then they'll tie it to the big omnibus as well. So they won't let this crisis go to, go to waste. The You're Democrats kidding. will will mess around with this all week long, holding uh, the Ukrainian people at, at, as the hostage. It just never ends up here. I'm just mad as hell. I don't know when. When this ends, uh, the, the politics of all this, why can't we just do the right thing, get the funding through Congress, get those jets moved over to Ukraine? It's every day. Well, let me ask, Senator, I got to get re- I got to walk you back. Yeah. I'm a, there's a gap in yeah. my knowledge here. Are you saying that yeah. before the Democrats will stop buying Russian oil, they have tied it to something else or some type of uh, Ukrainian funding tied to something else? Yeah. You, you got it. So. I think everybody here on Capitol Hill thinks we need to come up with $10 billion of funding uh, to help the Ukrainians out, to help buy more munitions, to help um, with, with food and water, all those types of issues. They want to tie that funding to more COVID relief dollars. So the president is asking for another $22 billion of COVID relief for more testing and more vaccines. But we have a, over $100 billion setting there from the last COVID relief fund that's not been spent yet. And then they're going to take both of those and tie it to keeping the government open on Friday as well. Unbelievable. Does that make better sense? Yeah, uh, it's unbelievable. It's unacceptable. Nobody's looking for COVID relief money right now. Uh, if they wanted to do that and ask for therapeutics during the height of Omicron, they might have had a sentiment there. But instead, they come up with the therapeutics, didn't pre-order them, so no one gets them. And China's getting hit with Omicron right now, which is, I find, somewhat uh, heartening to see the, the, the virus they sprung in the world they're finally starting to suffer with. Uh, but, uh, Senator, as we look right now, we're looking at a situation where uh, we need full support for the Ukrainians. We also need a different way to get oil and gas to Europe. From what you know about uh, I, uh, LNG infrastructure How close are we to be able to get our natural gas in an affordable, timely way to Europe? Yeah. So, Brian, certainly we have ships as we're speaking on their way over there. Our friends in Texas and Louisiana, the private sector is responding to it. I don't know that we could turn that needle today to to everything that that Russia is shipping them. But there's a, our friends over in Israel have a pipeline that they now have new natural gas fields that they could be getting the gas there as well. So I think realistically it would take a year, uh, maybe two years, to, to totally replace what Russia is sending them right now. In the meantime, you know, Europe is paying for their sins. They shut down all their uh, nuclear energy so they don't have any baseload. America, please don't repeat the same mistakes that the European Union is making. Um, Here is, uh, I want you to hear Senator Chris Murphy. He's saying a little bit what you're saying, but at the end of his statement is the one that sticks with me. 
if prices go up, then you are naturally, through the market mechanisms, going to have more U.S. production. Joe Manchin represents a coal state. Uh, I represent a state that's going to have a lot of wind power online very soon. And so, you know, my preference would be to try to fill in that gap with renewable energy. I would just want to make sure that in the United States, if we're going to have to fill in what we lose in Russian gas, that's not just from West Virginia coal. That's also from Long Island Sound wind power. Do we really think Long Island Sound wind power is going to replace Russian gas? <laughs> no, Brian, I'm kind of laughing. Kansas, about 45, 50 percent of the electricity in Kansas is now produced by wind energy. But without the base load that we have right now from coal and nuclear and natural gas, we would be up a creek without a paddle right now. Look, I'm in favor of, of using clean, affordable energies. I'm also in favor of taking traditional energies and making them cleaner. We have biofuel technology right now that could cut the tailpipe emissions in half, but we're not utilize, maximizing those. So there are real solutions out there. The, the carbon footprint of America is at a 25-year low. We're producing 14% less than a decade ago, thanks to American innovation. So let's accentuate the positive and all the above energy policy. We're going to have to have more nuclear base load if we want to get away from coal burning. So the solutions are out there, but we can't go from zero to 100 miles an hour. or We'll be in the same shape that Europe is right now. We will be at the mercy of Vladimir Putin and Venezuela and the Middle East once again if, if we keep going down this White House energy policy. So now Joe Manchin not only backs you, he also is backing the, for increasing production at home. So at least you have one, it looks like, Democratic vote. Here's what he said yesterday on Meet the Press, Cut 31. The people in my state of West Virginia mm-hmm. believe it's basically foolish for us to keep buying products and giving profit and giving money to Putin to be able to use against the Ukrainian people. That's exactly what he's doing. So why wouldn't we lead? Why wouldn't we show the resolve we have? I understand there's more dependency in the world, but you know, here's the problem. We have the ability to ratchet up and be able to backfill. Mm -hmm. We have the energy. We have the resources here. And we have the technology. We're a million barrels short a day right now that we can just ramp up like that. And we don't have to put any more pain on the American people that are already suffering with inflation now. But I believe the American people would pay if they had to, seeing that they're saving freedom and saving lives of people, innocent people. Can you get a John Tester on board with that? Uh, can you get some other so-called moderates on board with this? And maybe, you know, you need your 60 votes to pass. You can introduce this legislation right. to ban U.S. purchases of Russian oil today. you got Joe Manchin. Can you get others? Brian, I think we do. And certainly Joe Manchin is another profile in courage. It takes a lot of guts to stand up to your entire party and say, look, you're wrong. We need to pivot away from this plan. Let's use some common sense. Uh, so we need to applaud him. But I do think there's more folks out there, especially if they'll, if they'll indeed sit down and look at the science and as well as the affordability of the energy. I sat on the energy committee with Joe. Uh, he gets it. He absolutely gets it. He's from a, a coal-rich state, and I think he understands that we're going to have to do different things with coal. He understands that we're going to need small nuclear um, modular reactors. We can take the waste from the current uh, uranium that's being used in our nuclear plants and use them in these small thorium reactors. So the solutions are setting out there. We have the technology. I mentioned the biofuels as well, but we need the White House to stop the war. I mentioned this earlier. I'm going to come back to it right now. 
the, the Federal Reserve Bank, all the, the people that govern over our banks are making it almost impossible to loan money to these oil folks. Right now, we I only heard. have a third, of my, a third of the oil rigs out there drilling oil that we had compared to a couple of decades ago. And the people that I grew up with, people that have been drilling oil before I was born, very successful businessmen and women, cannot get loans to go drill new oil. You can't just flip a switch and make this happen. If we embargo Russian oil, There'll be some short-term pain, I think 25 to 50 cents a gallon. But the long-term gain over the next – it'll pay itself back in a year, and it'll free up our national security posture. What made Secretary Pompeo and President Trump so successful was we had energy independence. We didn't have to worry about Iranian oil. And here we have this evil axis of power working together now, uh, trying to get Iran back on, back in line with this nuclear talk and allow them to start selling oil again. It's just it's just the craziest policy I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and Senator, to have to pressure the free market, these banks, to not supply uh, and not uh, support oil and gas when it does make a profit and it is good business sense, it just doesn't fit the green agenda, is criminal. And I'm so glad you've got to keep bringing that up. Senator Roger Marshall, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for covering the story. You got it. And also, he's uh, actually a medical doctor. And we come back. I see you up there, one 866 We're watching the unfolding war right now. Another push uh, by Russia, but they're paying a heavy price for it. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I see the calls up there. And uh, let's go waiting patiently in North Dakota. Brian. Hey, Brian. Brian, how are you today? Good. What's in your mind? Hello. Well, uh, one of the things we want to talk about, we are at a crossroads right now that we're looking at with this new green deal and also what's happening in Ukraine. And if you take a look, if we turn everything uh, to electric here, whether it be wind power or our cars or our, our, our transportation, our trucking, uh, whatever else, um, I also have worked with the government, and their big push is all about EMP protection. So now you come along and everything's electric we have here, and then we get attacked under an EMP attack or a nuclear attack. It shuts everything down. You're going to Everything's going to go to a standstill, and it is the poorest strategic planning on the planet yeah i also heard that you guys in north dakota were told to pull back on the drilling that directly affects Uh, you guys yeah well you also got to realize there's two xl pipelines there's one that's already in existence and it's only running a third capacity so if you crank that baby up to full we could get oil back down to 50 dollars a barrel without any problem i don't know about that but uh, i guess you would know more you're the expert don wokv real quick don Remember in the summer, remember in the summer of 2008 when Bush was still president, all you heard in the media constantly was record gas prices under a Republican president, the record gas prices under a Republican president. Now that we're going to have a new gas price record, do you think they're going to mention that it's happening in our Democrat president? The media won't, but Don, the American people do. They get it. Thanks so much for the call. When we come back, why it's Donald Trump's fault. I'm not kidding. I don't believe it, but I'm not kidding. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Certainly there was an awful lot done by the administration, also by Congress and by um, Ambassador Haley herself at the United Nations. 
But I think that just the one point that sums everything up that you yourself touched on is that President Trump, at a pretty critical period, withheld military assistance to Ukraine that was desperate for us at that particular juncture, basically to get Volodymyr Zelensky to do him a personal favor. Now, that is the total mischaracterization of Fiona Hill yesterday to say that that gap that she said existed, that Michael Goodwin educated me, there was no gap, uh, existed when President Trump was trying to get Zelensky to do an investigation on what the Bidens were actually up to when he was vice president of the United States and what Hunter was doing with a multimillion dollar deal in that country. Uh, then they had those conversations that resulted in an impeachment. But don't pretend like that was a critical time and that there was this huge gap in lethal aid getting to Ukraine when the previous administration wouldn't give them any aid outside blankets and MREs. And Miranda Devine wrote a column on that without knowing that Fiona Hill was going to embarrass herself with that statement. And she joins us now, New York Post columnist uh, and also author of Lap- uh, Laptop from Hell. Miranda, welcome back. Thanks so much, Brian. <clears throat> um, I mean, look, Fiona Hill's just running the Democrat narrative, which uh, that's the talking points that they have this week. Uh, instead of doing everything they can to try and avert catastrophe, um, they are just spinning things to try and justify their bad behaviour and Joe Biden's um, being compromised by Ukraine and Russia. I mean, how could you be blaming Trump for this? Are you kidding? Well, it, it's really, they are delusional, but unfortunately, because they do control, uh, you know, vast swathes of the media, they think they can control the media narrative. I mean, to a large extent, that is true, and they've managed to do it. Look at the Russia collusion hoax. I just think that they may have, it's like the boy who cried wolf. They have told so many lies. They have spun the narrative in their direction so many times. I think that people are now, they don't trust the media and they don't trust anything that they read that comes from the Democrat perspective. Why don't we go over what you chronicled in your column, talking about what the Joe Biden did do when he was in charge of Ukraine policy after they had the Donbass region taken from them in Crimea. He was pretty much vice president, had that in his portfolio. How did he handle it? Appallingly. I mean, there was Joe Biden flying into Kiev uh, regularly and lecturing the Ukrainians on corruption. Uh, you know, he, he was waxing lyrical about how they would just get their democracy on its feet if they would only turn their back on corruption, while his son is being paid $83,000 plus a month to sit on the board of this corrupt Ukrainian MG company. And, you know, Everybody knew that. And within the State Department, there were mid-level officials trying valiantly to sound the internal warning. Uh, a couple of them actually went to Joe Biden personally, one time on Air Force Two, another time in his office, and said, look, you know, this is causing us a problem with our anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine. There's a lot of chatter from the oligarchs and so on about Hunter being on the board of Burisma, which was the whole point of Hunter being on the board of Burisma. And then Joe Biden compounds things by going off and boasting um, in a public forum that he had uh, forced Ukraine, the Ukraine president at the time, Poroshenko, to fire his chief prosecutor, a man named Viktor Shokin, who was, at the time he was fired, actively investigating corruption at Burisma, and he had just seized the properties of the owner of Burisma, a guy called 
Blachewski, who was paying Hunter the money and who was actually currying favour with Hunter, inviting him to his fishing lodge in Norway. They had a close personal relationship, Hunter, and this corrupt Ukrainian oligarch. And, you know, thanks to uh, his relationship with Hunter and thanks to a bribe that was paid uh, to the prosecutor's office before Viktor Shokin got there, um, Shlochevsky got off all the international uh, charges that he was up on. His money that had been frozen in his London bank accounts was unfrozen, and he was good to go. So that was $83,000 a month well spent. Yeah, and so if you talk about problems with the Ukraine... The president of the United States is, at the very least, should have somebody investigating or asking those questions, even in the Obama administration when they become commentators. Fiona Hill, who, who, who uh, characterized herself as a as a think tanker, as a, uh, as a diplomat, is nothing but a politician. Masquerading as that, which I think is even more damaging. But the one person no one was counting on, uh, Miranda, is Vladimir Kalinsky, Zelensky. Now, he, Zelensky is a guy that's actually unified NATO and Europe in a way that no Western leader has. And President Biden hasn't gotten close and has motivated the masses to help out these people in a way the, the president never got close to doing either. Here is Zelensky today. Cut three. We will not forgive the destroyed houses. We will not forgive the missile that our air defense shot down over Okmadit today and more than 500 other such missiles that hit our land all over Ukraine, hit our people and children. We will not forgive the shooting of unarmed people, destruction of our infrastructure. We will not forgive. And by him communicating, he's gotten the MiGs that he wanted. He berated the West to do it and find a way to get it done. We got to the bottom of it that Poland said, I won't give them up unless I can be replaced. The, the uh, America said, we don't have uh, any laying around. We found some. Now that's going to happen. He wanted more Stinger missiles. He wanted more aid. He is getting it. He wants more humanitarian aid. He's been forced to do it. You know what happened? They people, the people of Berlin, the people of Paris, the people in America, uh, in the Czech, in Slovakia, in the Czech Republic, have risen up in their center square and let their voices be known. And that has forced the change in policy. That's leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And it's leadership that we don't see really um, many other places in the world at the moment, and certainly not in the West. Uh, I mean, but, but I would say that it probably Putin had more to do with unifying NATO than Zelensky or Joe Biden. Um, uh, I think it's clarified a lot of things for Europe. And uh, I, I just, I do think, though, that as valiant and as courageous as the Ukrainian people have been, and I mean, the fierce resistance that Putin has met is due to solely uh, the courage of the Ukrainians and the leadership of Zelensky. However, I think they need to be realistic and understand that, I mean, Russia has nukes. Russia has a lot more firepower. Um, you know, they, they've, they've set back Putin and uh, Putin is now at the negotiating table. And I think that that should be seriously, uh, and I think America and Europe should be putting pressure on Zelensky to go to the negotiating table and start suing for peace because um, this 
this catastrophe, this this destruction, this death of civilians is just going to continue otherwise. I don't see Putin just pulling out and saying, oh, forget about it. Well, I don't. Uh, but I thought Colonel Steve Gonyard had this point to say. He's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State on This Week with, with George Stephanopoulos this week. Cut five. I think at this point uh, it's going to have to be a negotiated peace, George. Uh, the Russians cannot achieve their political goal. Putin cannot achieve his political goal. One military analyst is saying that within three weeks the Russian military will be exhausted. The economy might not much be-, be much better. But the way that this battlefield looks right now, Mr. Putin cannot accept this. He cannot look for a settlement here because this map is a humiliation. And you're saying he doesn't have the means for a long-term occupation? Uh, he doesn't have the troops. He would have to probably double or troop, triple the number of troops that he is, uh, has in, uh, in Ukraine right now. But uh, we think that what will eventually happen is that uh, the settlement will occur and, uh, and he will have to uh, negotiate some kind of face-saving uh, agreement. I mean, that, that could be good news for the whole world. They need 800,000 troops to hold a hostile Ukraine. They'll never be able to do it. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And look, there's a document floating around now uh, that Lavrov, the foreign minister, has just uh, calling on the military draft for all Russians aged 15 to 72. I mean, they are sending babies into war. Uh, And and I can tell you the mothers of Russia are not going to be happy about that. Um, But look, uh, you know, there's news out just uh, this morning that Russia is offering to stop hostilities immediately um, based on a a number of terms, um, one being that Ukraine write into its constitution that it will not join any bloc like NATO, um, that Russia's ownership of Crimea is uh, is accepted and a couple of other things. So um, that's a beginning. And I think that's a good sign. And I do think that Ukraine should be um, encouraged uh, by the West to uh, go to the negotiating table and make some compromises. Look, they, they've always said that, but they, I don't know about compromises. When they're dividing up your land and taking it from you and saying, I need you to sign on the bottom line, that doesn't sound like much of a compromise. But, Miranda, i got no, to bring it to— if the, you don't have much hope—you know, you don't have much chance, is what I'm saying. Well, if, the Russians are being bled dry, to too. The Russians are being yeah. bled dry and they're being abused. Uh, they're being isolated by the, uh, by the world community in a way I didn't think possible. But, Miranda, I want to bring you to something else that no one's looking at, and that's the Iranian deal. We're asking the Russians to help us cut a bad Iranian deal that's going to allow them to, uh, to start putting their oil online and eliminate most of the sanctions that has hobbled them for the last four years. This is disaster America's for, forgetting to pay attention to. It's unbelievable. I mean, in the middle of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration is in Vienna still trying to revive the Iran nuclear deal and Russians are helping with the negotiations and China. We had there was a a video posted on the Islamic Republic news agency on Saturday, which shows that Russia's chief negotiator just boasting about how Iran got so much more than it could expect. And that's because America is going cap in hand to Iran for oil. It's going to Saudi Arabia. It's going to Venezuela. I mean, seriously, we have our own oil and gas. Why do we need to beg other countries for it? It's, it's a tragic and it's a self-inflicted wound. And that this deal can't make it. I, I hope something happens. Miranda Devine, thanks so much. 
Thanks, Brian. Pick up Laptop from Hell, too, if you want an in-store, inside story on a lot of Hunter's dealings with the Ukraine. Listen, when we come back, I'll, I'll finish up with your calls. I see you up there, one 408 No doubt about it. The human cost is great. The suffering needs to end. But if we don't end this the right way, we're just postponing a more massive death and destruction push by Vladimir Putin next. He's got to go. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. But there are no humanitarian corridors. Instead of humanitarian corridors, they can only make bloody ones. A family killed today in Irpen. A man, a woman, and two children, right on the road, when they were just trying to get out of town to escape. The whole family. How many such families have died in Ukraine? We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will punish everyone who committed atrocities in this war on our land. We will find every bastard which shot at our cities, our people, which bombed our land, which launched rockets, which gave the order and pressed start. There will be no quiet place on this earth for you, except for the grave. And that is uh, Zelensky speaking today. Let everybody know that he's still fighting. He's still in Kiev. He's still in the capital. It's estimated, according to the mayor, Klitschko, there's about 20,000 dead if you take accumulation and round off all sides. 4,500 Russian soldiers evidently killed. There's been nine aircraft shot down on Saturday alone, which is unbelievable, Vietnam-like, considering that they should be owning the air. Civilians in the Ukraine, at least, according to the U.N., 1,123 have died um, already in that country. The crisis, 1.7. About a million have gone into Poland. Sanctions, 19 oligarchs, 47 associates among the companies that are bailing out. A lot of the refineries are just refusing, refusing to take the Russian oil and refine the Russian oil. And Visa, MasterCard have pulled out. Shell, GM, Netflix, Disney, Boeing have pulled out. You know who hasn't? McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Pepsi. Guys, what are you thinking of? Pull the hell out of there. Let these people understand how bad their, their leadership is. Uh, Kyrgyzstan right now is run by the Russians. That is the one city that's run by the Russians, major city. There are already Ukrainian protests in that city. They are in hell. They're not going to be able to subdue this country. The country hates them more than ever. If they take a city, they're not going to be able to hold the city. Today, they're going to move on Odessa, where they're a little bit stronger in the south. But overall, Russia has no idea what they got themselves into. Ukraine knows how to fight, and every day that goes by, they are being armed. I do know they are suffering, and that's tremendous, and it's uh, unacceptable. Maripol, in particular, they've had no lights. They've had no water for four days. They tried to leave. They got bombed back in. They were told there's another humanitarian corridor. There wasn't. Then they said there's buses waiting to take you to Belarus or Russia. Thank you. I'll stay here. Daytona, uh, Florida is where we find Gary, WNDB. Hey, Gary. Appreciate the lead-in, and I'll be really quick. Uh, three or four days ago, Pete Buttigieg, during a statement about uh, tapping our oil reserves, said we don't need to be go galloping around for permanent solutions to an immediate short-term problem. <laughs> and that was that's a really callous, horrible thing to say. He's, he's uh, so he, over his head, Gary. It's unbelievable. Who would makes him a transportation expert? Exactly. And and, and I, I wish the American people would not fall for the about 40 percent of them believe that when the Saki or anybody says they're releasing the oil reserves, it's going to help. 
That's my comment. It's two days. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Uh, it's not. So uh, oil, this is something correctable. I expected to see the White House make an announcement today and tomorrow to say they're going to do it. And they say the American people seem to want it, but they should be ready for higher gas prices. Listen, on one hand, you're saying it's only 7% of all our imports. Fine. We're telling you, I'm telling you, we're their number one customer. Shut it off. Then you're saying, if I cut that off, expect gas to rise. All right. Gas is already over $4. I know you want a fall guy and say the American people are willing to do it. But this is not it. We're too smart for that. Overall, you want to see long-term what's going to happen. Long-term, what's going to happen? If things end today, Russia realized their interventionist policies will not stand. Other big operations, their Army, their Navy, their Air Force is not ready for prime time. They are not to be feared. And if they do take on a NATO country, they are outgunned, outmanned, and out-sophisticated. But I think the big picture is China. Chris Christie's assessment, I think, is right on the money. Cut 16. The thing that I've been thinking a lot about this week is China. And China is watching what we do. They've watched what we've done, which I think allowed Putin to have the permission to do what he did. And they're going to see now how we respond and react going forward. And so this is not just about what happens in Ukraine, which obviously is vitally important to Europe and important mostly to the people of Ukraine. But it's going to be what's America's role in the world and how is President Xi looking at what we're doing and how we're interacting? And, and are we tough enough and strong enough to prevent them from getting active now, too? I think this sends a message. Not only are they getting China getting hit with the Omicron variant now, they're seeing, is it worth it? Even though it's going to be harder to boycott China, to sanction their banks and their institutions, I get it. They're saying, is it really worth it? Taiwan, the only problem Taiwan is to them is that it represents freedom and a democracy. They've never been a military threat. Don't pretend that they are. Would they really want to do that and divide the country against them and make life more difficult for them? For what reason? And Taiwan is armed. They are sophisticated, and they do have a battle plan. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.